0: Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach, designed so you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that transform us our relationships, our organizations. Today, we'll be exploring a book that accomplishes all three of those objectives as we visit with Elizabeth Doty, who has authored the book called The Compromise Trap, How to Thrive at Work Without Selling Your Soul. Following our interview today, you are invited to log LinkedIn's LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our bookends featured authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview, as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and I'd like to introduce our guest today, Elizabeth Doty, who is a business storyteller in the trenches. She's a consultant, coach, and facilitator specializing in how people participate in large organizations while staying true to themselves and being a positive force, however they define those. Since earning her MBA from Harvard and joining a reengineering firm in 1991, Miss Doty has both subscribed to the official story of business and lived through the contradictions and absurdities of everyday organizational life. Prior to business school, she worked in the hospitality industry, where she served as a manager for more than 11 years, mostly in four-star hotels. In late 1993, Ms. Doty founded WorkLore, a consulting firm that partners with leaders and teams to help make their missions real, using story, systems thinking and constructive conflict to untangle complex problems that hide gold mines of opportunity current and past clients include intuit camp dresser mckee stanford university skillsoft hewlett-packard and mcgraw-hill a chronic interviewer miss Doty has spoken with more than 400 people about their day-to-day experiences at work. She is convinced of the enormous potential for individuals to engage more actively and constructively in the systems of which they are a part, as a critical element in their own well-being for better organizational performance and for greater alignment of organizational actions with the needs of the larger world. Ms. Doty received her B.A. in economics from the University of California at Berkeley in 1985 and earned her M.B.A. with honors from Harvard in 1991. She has presented systems as Systems Thinking in Action, the Business Ethics Network, and the Bay Area Society for Organizational Learning. She has been published in the Pfeiffer Human Resource Management Annual and Strategy Plus Business Magazine. From 2004 through 2006, she assisted Dr. William Yuri in researching examples for his book The Power of Positive No. To get a copy of The Compromise Trap or to connect personally with Elizabeth, visit www.compromisetrap.com. Elizabeth Doty, welcome to Bookends. Thank you very much, Susan. I'm very glad to be here. Elizabeth, would you frame what a compromise trap looks like for us? You open the book with your story of Jim. Could you share the story and, and tell us how it illustrates the type of pressure that leads to a compromise trap? Sure, I'd be happy to, and it was rather a coincidence that he,
1: he was the first person I interviewed as part of the study that led to the book, and yet his story really exemplified some of the journeys people described to me in other interviews. I first met Jim at a conference, uh, and he was a man on a mission. He was so proud of his company. Um, he described what he was doing in selling um, uh, recy- carpet that could be recycled, He described what he was doing as kind of preaching the story every day, out there telling the sustainability story. And when I asked him, as my interview protocol requested, you know, required, um, do you ever experience tension between your personal values and the person you feel you need to be at work? He said, well, you know, that doesn't come up when you work for a really good company. And this is a strategy that I, you know, later dubbed working for the good guys. It was a way to avoid internal conflict by choosing your company very carefully. And it's a good strategy. It really works in many circumstances, but his experience over time ended up showing some of the, the challenges with that. Eighteen months later, I got a voicemail from him saying, you have to interview me again. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this is where it got interesting, and this is why I think his story exemplifies so many of us out there and where I wanted to offer more solutions. When I went to meet with him again, he was downcast. He felt he had been set up, uh, duped. He mentioned the movie uh, Who Killed the Electric Car as kind of an example. Yeah. He, and what happened basically was that he felt he had tarnished his reputation because he had gone along with a compromise. Mm-hmm. The company had said, um, yes, we sell recyclable carpet squares, but you also have to sell our large product line of broadloom carpeting, which is the worst offender in landfill and toxic waste. But they assured him that they would be developing ways to take that back from customers if they bought it so that they wouldn't actually be going to landfill. He believed them. He compromised. He went out and he sold based on this. And about a year later, he had heard nothing more about what was going to happen with that new, with that product line. And he began to see that it wasn't really a commitment they were going to follow through on. Yet he had made that commitment to his customers. It really stuck in his craw. It was a quite a visceral feeling for him, um, and it came to a threshold where he felt like he couldn't really go on believing this. He would either have to kind of tune it out and pretend he didn't care or change his approach.
0: Yeah. We we become part of the organizations we serve. When we suddenly recognize we're not going down the same road together, it's a traumatic experience. It, it certainly sounded that way for Jim. It was, and I think his story points
1: out a critical component of this. Um, we'll talk later about people's feeling that they may have been making a devil's bargain. Mm-hmm. Well, a devil's bargain happens in a particular moment where you sign away your soul, right? Yeah. This was an incremental thing and there didn't actually have to be any villain. That the initiative could have just been kind of dropped from the corporate radar, but it still had the same meaning for him in terms of whether he was doing something that felt honest and true.
0: Yeah. Well, there are many kinds of compromise, as you point out in your book. On page 18, you have a graphic showing the ways compromise can show up for us. Can you highlight these for us and share share one of the most dramatic examples you know that illustrates one of these type of compromises? Um, It was quite an honor to be let in on people's private
1: uh, professional doubts because it took a bit of trust for them to admit this. They so wanted to believe in their companies. And I think many of their companies were actually good organizations, Uh, identified eight major buckets where people felt pressure to compromise. And um, one of the main ones, and this is just kind of baffling because it it actually benefits the company not to pressure people to compromise this, and one of the main ones was people's desire to do good work, the desire to do work they felt contributed to the world and was high quality, met professional standards and commitments, And the one woman I spoke to that really most affected me, and it was quite emotional for her when she recalled the situation, was that she had been an intensive care nurse during the period where uh, managed care came into effect, and her patient load had been tripled. So she began having panic attacks on her way to work, terrified that someone would die on her shift because she simply couldn't keep up with all of the people who needed attention from her in this, you know, Highly intensive, um, demanding job. My heart just went out to her, and yet I could also see how, in a remote office, that might not be quite as an apparent consequence of that of a policy. But those of us on the front lines, actually seeing the consequences, see the potential, the risk, the the the, the harm that could be caused, and I think we actually feel it quite personally, as she did.
0: Certainly, yeah. In in these life and death kinds of situations, you wonder um, how many people are carrying around things that get to a point that they're having panic attacks. Uh, Somehow or another, we don't share information like this up the line with the people making these decisions and putting us in these places that are not good for any of us. They're not.
1: No. And And we can talk, as we get into this, we can talk about the the flip side of this from a leader's point of view um, often people who speak up about this are perceived as whining
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but it's, there are ways to look at it where the person is actually kind of the, um, the canary in the coal mine or as one person I know calls it the pointy end of the chisel mm-hmm. where all the forces are leading to this and now they're the last step in a chain that's going to lead to potential harm or risk
0: yeah yeah. be be true to thyself <laughs> Yes. That was a a great quotation in your book and certainly very appropriate. Um, Well, many of us feel trapped and uh, when confronted with a compromise, yet we do have choices as we decide how to engage. Could you discuss the two choices that are really before us?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And there's a diagram that's kind of the organizing framework in the book that really highlights these two directions. And it was a bit of a, it took a lot of sorting through my notes to identify these two primary choices because they're not the most obvious ones. You would think that the choice really happens at the moment of feeling that pressure, and these choices are a bit upstream from that. They they really relate to how am I going to engage in my work overall? What what attitude am I going to take towards my work? And I found people fell into one of two major clusters, right? And they moved and they shifted and there were variations. But the primary two strategies I saw people taking was either playing along with the game, feeling as if they had little choice but to comply, to to accept the terms that were given to them, uh, potentially to earn their stripes and then push back once they got to the top or got some power. And then others who felt like, and potentially because they had gone down the other path and realized where it led, that they couldn't accept the terms and that they had to take a broader perspective and what I call redefine the game, you know to really question even whether it was a game, and so much of um much of the rest of the book it goes into how exactly do you do that because it when you take that broader perspective, you actually see how you could potentially end up depleting yourself when you play along with the game, that you may have more options that appear on the surface, especially when perhaps you're being intimidated or cornered or or bucking a trend in a corporation and also you get clearer about what you really want and it may not be the things that are rewarded or people assume you want and that creates a little more freedom and actually the ability to do some good.
0: As you're talking about the things you learned as you were discovering these patterns, maybe you'd tell us a little about the research um, you did to write The Compromise Trap and the three themes that emerged on this journey. Um, so the first thing is I, I would almost say that this is two parallel
1: tracks that have been going on in my own professional life and personal life. I have a kind of a private love of story and people's stories. And so whenever I had a client engagement, I've always looked for the story behind the people I'm working with. It's kind of been just what keeps me going. Um, and I've been a consultant for 20 years, working in the guts of many organizations. And then secondly, as a consultant concerned with what, Works best in organizations and how we get out of recurring dysfunctional patterns. I noticed that there were quite a few breakthroughs in my client organizations that revolved around individuals who had been, quote, sucking it up, you know, not speaking up about a problem where they either saw the solution or the consequences of some policy. Mm-hmm. And that that pattern was actually hurting the organization and causing the individual incredible stress. So I said, there's got to be something going on here that it's hurting the individual and the organization, but there's so much uh, momentum not to speak up. What's going on with that? And so I began what I called an appreciative inquiry into the dark side of work. (laughs) Going into with a solution-oriented focus, what is it that stops people and how real are those concerns and threats Where might assumptions be getting in the way? Where could we shift maybe with some skills or a larger perspective to give people more freedom and organizations the benefit of more perspectives? So as I did that, I interviewed 52 people through formal, in-depth, you know, two- and three-hour-long interviews through a a prescribed protocol kind of inspired by the uh, ethnography or narrative inquiry methods. And coming through those 52 plus an additional 67 more informal conversations, I arrived at three core themes, and I think these themes interact. Um, They won't be too foreign, I think, to your listeners, but it's been helpful to people to have them crystallized. So the first one is what I described as an intense pressure to conform, almost a gravitational pull, whether you consider it for the good or the bad, that there's just a need to adapt and buy in, People use the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, over and over and over. Mm. And I don't know if you recall the origins of, origins of that phrase. Do you uh, remember?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: this, it's, it's been long enough that I think for some of the people using the phrase, there's not quite a vivid connection back to what that meant yeah. uh, with Jim Jones and the mass suicides where people drank the Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. Mm. But it's used to refer to the idea of really getting on board. But people describe the consequence of that as things like having an ownership of their psyche. Uh a talk I recently did, someone was asking their coach to help deprogram from the cult to really reclaim their ability to think independently. And so whether it's pressure in a good direction or a bad one, there is this pressure to, to conform. And then within that, I describe what we call unhealthy pressure to compromise. And what I mean by that is Situational dynamics, either official incentives or social mores or authority relationships that make it costly to do the right thing. That mean you have to spend some of your relationship capital or your um, personal sense of security, um, your relationship with your boss, maybe your actual metrics and, and pay in order to do what you think is best for you and the company. And this was surprisingly frequent, and it there was a real myth that this didn't happen in good companies, as Jim mentioned early on. And yet I heard story after story where otherwise good companies, um, with highly ethical cultures, held up as great places to work, much admired companies in the country, where people described fear they described major contradictions between a, a you know a inspiring mission or strategy and the actual budgets that were created that that contradicted that um, people who completely were blind to the ways that their production processes were were making customers sick and yet they just weren't aware of it and didn't want to spend the time to to learn about it, so that the strategy of working for the good guys wasn't actually a way. To um, to avoid some pretty significant ethical and values decisions, and led me to think we all need to strengthen our abilities. And then the third theme that came through, and these were this was from the language of people I spoke with, was that a devil's bargain is often uh, made by degrees. It's not that moment (laughs) where the the uh, you know in the what the movie The Devil's Advocate where they come in and and say, you know, if you sell your soul, you'll get to the top and you'll have all these rewards. It was more like an incremental thing and people not being sure, was that a good compromise? Am I going to regret that? And then people I interviewed later in their careers looking back and saying, you know, my values mutated. I, I lost the core of who I set out to be. And I don't remember exactly when I did it, but I got pretty far away from it. One of the most poignant conversations this way was actually a relatively young entrepreneur who looked at me after completing a merger with, you know, a larger company and some fallout with his personal relationships. Said, "I'm not sure I'm a good guy." Oh no! <laughs> and thank God he asked the question. That's the first step. But that that was that was really a present um, tension for people. And I was amazed how often Faustian bargains and selling your soul and devil's bargains and things like that came up as a background metaphor for how people made choices and, and and weighed what they would do and what they wouldn't.
0: Yeah. it's interesting how when you're part of a big system, how sometimes it feels easier to just go along maybe it's incremental like the boiling of a frog mhm uh, but s- somewhere along the line as we discover these things we find that we have this whole system with momentum and it's not positive it appears to just pull people along it's it's, uh, it's like it's like a magnet
1: it is and i think that the metaphor that came most to me was similar to magnetism was the gravitational pull that kind of pulls you into orbit around this this organization. Um, and that's, you know, having a positive, strong culture is a good thing, um, but not if it has people squelch the parts of their intelligence and perspective that they can bring to keep things honest right. um, and to uh, to resolve the, the recurring problems.
0: Well, I'd like to read a sentence from the book that hit me like a punch in the stomach. And you write on page 48 uh, where it says, Every time you make an unhealthy compromise to reach your goals, it is like paying for this with a credit card. Um it was interesting I was
1: writing this right in the midst of the um kind of the collapse of the economy, the credit markets and how every one of us at every level from the consumer all the way to Wall Street had effectively bought things on credit cards, right? Um, An adjustable rate mortgage for a home you can't afford uh, that's overvalued. Um, And what I was trying to capture here is this dynamic I noticed. Um, Many people I spoke to said, well, you know, sometimes you just have to go along or you'll get fired. And what I noticed was that your perspective in the situation has a huge impact on whether you see all your options And that we actually end up making self-depleting, in the long run, impoverishing decisions because we're caving out of fear in that moment where we just we don't question our assumption, we just feel like we have to go along or we'll we'll die. And it really felt to people like a social death to disagree. And what I noticed happened when I traced, you know, the the longer term stories over time was that what they had done was taken on a liability of some kind. And that's with the credit card, right? So that there's a debt, a liability, something that they have to pay before they're going to feel fully aligned and have that sense of well-being. And these costs of compromise, the most obvious one people talk about is that your your reputation will be ruined, right? You'll be on the Wall Street Journal and you'll lose the respect of your family and your your peers. But I actually found in talking with people that there were seven costs of compromise, and that these not only take that original debt of feeling bad about something you've done, it's just not aligned for you, and end up compounding it over time and leading you to make more poor choices because you feel a little bit desperate and more myopic and those seven um the seven categories when I spoke with people kind of um uh, each people each person felt a different combination of these, but it's a pretty good menu. The first one is just the cognitive dissonance between what you've done and what you believe creates incredible stress. One lawyer told me when he was in the midst of his law practice and it was out of alignment for his values, it just makes you crazy. (laughs) It doesn't feel sane. (laughs) And then what we do all too quickly if we feel that stress is we tune it out and we adopt blinders that say, well, everyone does this. This is how it's done. If I didn't do it, someone else would. I just don't want to think about that. It's kind of the Scarlett O'Hara approach. right? <laughs> and we lose all the data that would come from really looking around us, and sometimes the data that would tell us to stop what we're doing. As we do that, we lose touch with that inner sense of guidance, what's right for us, even our ability to be productive and innovative and creative, and we start to develop an escalating commitment, which is a negotiations term, to a goal to prove that we were right all along. that all those sacrifices were justified. So you get more and more locked into getting that VP title by the time you're 40. Even if it isn't what you really want anymore, you get ego attached to it. And that leads you to the fourth one, which is you become more tied to external validation and less able to follow internal guidance about which decisions are best going to feed you and, and your commitments to your family. So the approval status uh, respect of your boss or people that you are in uh, um, competition with takes an inordinate function. It actually undermines your internal um, sources of reference and puts you, sets you up to be more externally referenced. Mm-hmm. Then the other three have more to do with external impacts. One is that you just attract more bullies. If people know they can bully you, uh, they'll try it again. Right, And at the same time, people who trusted you and maybe relied on you to be courageous, I'm thinking here often of middle managers Mm -hmm. and their employees who depend on them, to be honest, uh, when they find out that their leader is going to cave under pressure, you lose your respect, you lose people's trust, they don't rely on you, and that has not only a personal impact but your ability to, to be effective in an organization. And then the very last one is that you neglect the business. When Enron was scrambling to do all those, uh, you know, incredibly elaborate maneuvers, sure. they just weren't attending to the core of how do you build a power plant that's pro-
0: that's uh, profitable. Yeah, that that's quite a list. <laughs> yeah, to me, it kind of tips the scales it's It's amazing and and the impact of these things all through the organization it's not just the top e p s as you point out, but it includes middle managers and mm-hmm. and it tends to filter down through the system. Uh, Yet I grew up, and I think many of us did, learning that compromise was a good thing. Of course, this is one of the misconceptions you talk about um, in this work. You name a number of misconceptions, but I wondered if you could just highlight a few of these that may affect our decision to play the game and and clear these up for us.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, What what I did was um, actually through a pretty... Uh, juicy conflict with the, with my editor about exactly what the book was about, I came to the to the realization that there were certain misconceptions that actually had led people to think they had to play the game. And that if we could highlight those and get them into discussion, they might reconsider and then not set themselves up for that regret that people fell into when they looked back and thought maybe they had sold a part of their soul. And one of them, although I'm fine, this is very cultural. Um, I'm speaking to a number of activist groups, and they don't buy this one. <laughs> it's not a misconception for them. In business and in more conventional um, professions, we tend to assume compromise is good because we want people to get in alignment and get with the program and serve something larger than themselves and not um, you know not be a roadblock. And it's often considered selfish to be the roadblock, you know. And so it's it's actually contributing to the greater good to get off your issue, whatever it is, and your petty needs, and serve the
0: larger good. Ah, uh, a kind of a corporate value.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's you know collaboration, cooperation, all of those are actually true. Um, the problem is is that I think in a business sense, and the mirror image is true for activists going too far the other way, um, that we miss the ways that compromise can actually be unhealthy and that sometimes, and we don't always, it's kind of that gut reaction when we don't want to go along with something, potentially there's a lot of discussion of resistance to change. Yes. There may actually be some value that our gut is telling us is going to be violated, or we need to at least check out whether it's violated, but we dismiss it as being uncooperative and petty when actually we need to bring it into the mix because we may be the one person seeing it or just a handful of people seeing it, and that if we don't, you could potentially get to compromise in the sense on the negative sense like a a mission a military mission where the security is compromised mm-hmm. or in health where your health is compromised because you've not really taken care of the things that allow you to continue to function and be healthy that's not a good use of compromise an idea that i've put forth is really recognizing this and being able to sort out for you with your values and what you know about a situation, which compromises are healthy and which aren't. I have have a couple others I wanted to highlight. There were ten total, and it's far too many for us to do in this conversation, but there were two others that were fascinating to me, uh, really educational for me to actually think about them, that I think are kind of most surprising to people. And I've alluded to one a little bit already, and that is people often believe that good companies or leaders don't create unhealthy pressure to compromise. And I think it's more accurate to say that everyone has blind spots and that leaders' blind spots tend to be amplified. So, for example, uh, one company that was phenomenal at tra- creating innovative products for consumers, at one point the, um, the senior vice president humiliated a senior executive in a meeting until that person cried. Oh, my. And someone watching this, was so alarmed that they began to think that the entire company was false and all of its values were false because they were so contradicted in this one instance. Mm -hmm. But the research in social psychology says that we are all capable of incredible contradictions and that we're blind to those and very subtle things for positive or negative can tip us and that if we recognize that we can be part of tipping even our leaders into their best selves. So that's number two. And then the, the fifth one out of my ten is that we have this belief that you will always know when you're crossing a line. <laughs> and this was just fascinating when I did a survey of the psychology research to back up kind of what my my participants had gone through. There is research in the field of groupthink by um, some earlier researchers than Janice, who's most famous. Um, Sheriff and Ash did a, a, a study where people were looking at the length of a line you know, just the length of a stick or a line on a screen. And when everyone else said it was a certain length, the who were confederates, the person who was the subject of the experiment would report that they saw it the same way everyone else did, even though the line was shorter than that. And it was completely unconscious to them. And other other researchers at Harvard right now are studying bias, unconscious bias, by doing role plays and having people play, say, the auditor for a buyer or a seller of a business. Okay. And they tell them, okay, you're the buyer's uh, auditor. What do you th- value this business at? And, of course, they have an incentive to be, you know, pro-buyer, and the other side has an incentive to be pro-seller. Sure. And they're, they're, the gap between their estimates was about 30%. Oof. And then he changed the rules, and he said, okay, okay, now really – Really tell me what you think. There's, you know, there's 75 bucks in it for you. What's your real assessment? And they all stuck with their assessment. Oh, my
2: goodness. <laughs> it was so
1: unconscious that they were convinced that they had seen the facts. And so this bias, he thinks, as Professor Bazerman thinks, is actually more of a problem in the auditing professions than outright
0: corruption. Wow. It causes us to be a lot more humble, I think, or I hope. It would be interesting to look at that experiment in light of some of the work coming from Daniel Pink in his newest book where he's talking about intrinsic motivation mm. and, and and using carrots to motivate people. He's, he's disturbing everything that we thought we knew about motivation.
1: The behavioral approach from outside.
0: I haven't read
1: his books. I've heard a number of good references, but I do think um, some of the people that have influenced me um, wrote a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me Mm -hmm. and another one called Predictably Irrational. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of them show how our identity, situational forces press us far more than we realize, and then our identity of being competent, rational, and objective presses us to change the data or our beliefs show that what we did was justified.
0: It's interesting what you learned through the process. One of the things that you learned I just loved, in fact, as I read it, I was squealing with laughter at your summary of the film documentary called Citizen Volkov Havel Goes on Vacation. (laughs) I thought the use of creativity in the midst of an extremely difficult situation, you know, where they really could have gotten sucked in uh, to the negativity and, and pulled along. I was so impressed how they stood up to these powers. Uh, you, you, Would you talk about that and, and how we can re- redefine the game as an antidote to the compromise trap?
1: Yes, and I I have to tell you I think having stories of this is crucial because when we feel cornered like we have no choice to play the game, uh-huh. we can't see that there's any other way to go. So I love the idea that <clears throat> that there are stories that can help us remember the the incredible freedom we do have to change the terms in a situation. And in this case, I think Václav Havel is is a is a master of this, and of course he was a playwright, so he he's good at theater. Um And the story was, in Czechoslovakia, under the Soviet uh, puppet governments, there was uh, constant surveillance by the state police. He was a target for their surveillance, repeatedly arrested, imprisoned for years at a time, as were many of his um, fellow signers of a a declaration called the Charter 77. And he was used to this, and he had kind of gotten used to what it means to go to prison and all. And he tried in 1985, now remember this is long before people knew that the Berlin Wall was going to fall and the Soviet Union was going to crumble, he decided to go on vacation and see what would happen in the interactions with the state police. And some of the the film, I think part of it's a reenactment, but it was wonderful that he's being tailed front and back as if they were the only cars on the road, his little VW Golf, by three or four state police (laughs) Officers, I mean, they go on walks with him when he walks his dog. He is really under the ra- under the microscope. But he was, as you say, incredibly creative, as were his followers, to where um, when he was under surveillance, they were supposed to be hidden right outside the house where he was visiting. They would bring a tea service out to the state police and serve them tea <laughs> <laughs> in the cold, um, totally straight-faced. Uh-huh. But, of course, what they were indicating was, we know you're here. Right. We're not supposed to know. We're supposed to be afraid. We know you're here. And then he would go to them and he would say things like, please tell me your instructions so I can decide what I want to do for the rest of my vacation.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: He even gets to the point where he starts negotiating. He says, if your instructions are to do X, Y, Z, then I will terminate my vacation now. But on the other hand, if you will do X, I will continue. And the the culmination of it is um at one point the state police car goes off the road in the ice. And he and his friends get out of their car, <laughs> go go back, help the state police get their car back up on the highway and then proceed back on their chase. <laughs>
0: The whole thing is so hysterical. They must not have known what to do with this man.
1: No, he completely reframed the tension against the, you know, typically the play the game thing is us versus them in a poll, you know, polarized situation. And what he revealed at the end, and I think all of us playing a bigger game or redefining the game, have some kind of quest or mission or at least some value that we're trying to serve. And at the end of this whole episode, he describes what he was solving for was not to thwart or beat or disrupt the state police. His goal was to try and increase the sphere of what could be talked about openly. What a worthy goal, and it included the police, not as antagonists.
0: Exactly.
1: And I think this is the same pattern with the people I interviewed. Eighteen of the people I interviewed spoke of episodes or periods in their lives or were currently – practicing the strategy of redefining the game. And it basically came down to don't accept the terms. It, it looks like a lose-lose situation. Get creative. Don't count what you consider winning and losing the same way as the system tells you to. You know, Maybe being a vice president isn't really going to be what satisfies you. One, one CEO I interviewed said, um, I can't fail because I have no ambition. <laughs> that to
0: me is the redefining of the game. Yeah, it's It's sad for for so many people that just start going down that path and they feel they have no options. Yes. I hope that as people read your book, they begin to grasp the idea that they have options and, and that these are really unlimited. There are so many ways we can redefine things and start moving them in a new direction and Sometimes a person can actually mend an organization in the process, should they decide to stay. Yes, exactly.
1: And I'm hoping that this then means people who want to live their values don't have to leave, that they could actually um, focus on the higher potential and stay in and help shift things for other people. And I think um, you do have to deal with reality, but when you feel those options, it's, it's, you can actually survive you actually feel like okay it's not us and them there are there are plenty of things i could do here that could shift this and you start to have fun with it yes well
0: hobble was certainly having fun with it (laughs) very impish man Sometimes it seems that organizations miss the opportunity to get their teams very best when they develop too many rules and policies that can even end up backfiring. In Chapter 5, you share a personal example from your early career. Could you tell us about this experience and how we can reconnect to our strengths? Well, it's kind of embarrassing, Suna. <laughs>
1: But yeah, let's go there. In the service of, uh, of making a point and helping other people avoid my path, um, the first thing I think we do is, um, just in general, in business and in life potentially, is we assume that the people we're opposing or making our lives difficult are pursuing their own best interest. Okay. But in fact, they may be doing things that are self-defeating. And in this case, I was a salesperson for a hotel. Very young, I think I was, uh, what was I, 24, 25. Um, my boss didn't believe in me. He was kind of forced to hire me from another department when it got shut down. Oh and he applied some rather dysfunctional measures. Um, and as we know, measures are always imperfect. But he, I had to go on sales trips to promote the hotel for conventions and kind of these big-ticket um, corporate incentive programs and uh, sales meetings or board meetings and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And so I had to go on sales trips, and he was evaluating me on the number of – Uh, appointments I scheduled per day and he insisted that I have 10 appointments per day and my territory included Los Angeles (laughs) if you can just picture driving around um, I actually thought perhaps I should go to the places where they had the most business and that could potentially pay off best for the hotel but he fought me on this I had to have my 10 visits and I really tried what I did was schedule visits with high potential customers I considered with you know good business for the hotel, all over Los Angeles, um, you know, the county, Bur- up to Burbank, I was all over the place. And of course, as I did this, um, and he he stymied me with a few other policies like I couldn't pick up my rental car until Monday morning so I could save over the weekend, but I had to check in on a Saturday to get the Saturday night stay. Um, so there were a number of things that were just pure disrespect, and I was young enough just to take it. Yeah. Then i race around the countryside trying to make all these appointments that met my criteria and his and completely ruin the relationships because I was always late, right? I even had to cancel some that were very worthwhile. And in that moment, I thought he was a better judge of what would help the company, and so I didn't trust my own instincts. And in these moments, and many people I spoke to got to these points, um there's very little evidence that you're actually competent. <laughs> your boss is yelling at you. The numbers aren't measuring up in the way they want them to. Um and I I tell the story in the book that for me what turned it around was I would go to Disney to Disneyland and ride the roller coasters. And somehow that gave me this feeling of feeling empowered and um trusting myself and saying, you know, I'm really going to do this the way uh, I think is best for the company. And it ended up changing. I applied to business school and, and kind of shifted my career from that. But other people I know actually did that in the job. I tell the story of one woman who just walks into her boss. Similar situation. She was in a sales job, and her boss had told no one to speak to her because he didn't like hiring her either. And she said, uh, boss, this is disrespectful. It's not okay, and I recommend you fire me today or else start treating me as a member of the team.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: What do you think happened?
0: Oh uh, Well, uh- I'm hoping that he started treating her like a member of the
1: team. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the surprising thing, especially with um, people who value frankness, which many kind of overbearing bosses tend to value frankness. He said, You're right. I'm sorry. I don't know quite why I've done that. What do you suggest? And she said, Well, let me sell this way, that way. And she went on to be his top salesperson.
0: The power of truth and directness sometimes just laying the cards on the table really does turn people around certainly not in every situation but it's a good strategy under some circumstances and of course it takes skill I think what
1: I'm highlighting in particular here is that her truth was actually in his interest and how we say it is critical but when we find those you know, we often assume that well there must be something I'm not seeing here because it would help him if I sold <laughs> right now he's just paying my
0: salary for me to sit around <laughs> His salary is contingent upon your success. <laughs>
1: exactly. So, so people are not always rational. We're all schizophrenic, and I think that gives us a little more um, sense of being inspired to be creative when we realize that. When we assume everyone's rational and that what they're stalling us, um, it's because it really does help them. Then we feel like there are few choices.
0: Let's come back to Jim, your friend from the carpet industry. You asked him a very interesting question about the exact time his company's decisions and actions became an integrity issue for him, and he offers a surprising response. What are the implications of his answer for us?
1: Yes, yes. I thought this was very interesting. I still remember the moment. We were in this pub with peanut shells on the floor and having a couple beers, and it just hit me to, you know, it wasn't in my interview list. I said, you know, at what point? Because there was this threshold, right, where it wasn't a single bad decision. It was over time he began to realize that the company wasn't going to deliver on um, the more environmentally sustainable product. Um, I asked him, when exactly did this become an integrity issue for you? And he fired off really quickly, well, the moment you know. And then he stopped, and we both kind of looked down for a moment because something didn't ring true about that, and finally he looked back at me and says, you know, I have to revise that. The moment is when you should have known. And I think you're right to ask about the implications of that. It's a very subtle thing, and I think in most conversations about ethics, we, we, we don't put nearly enough attention on this. The option when you compromise comes along the, – the, the times when we compromise – always come along with the option to dismiss it from our awareness, yeah. to tune it out. And so the biggest question is actually, are we going to let ourselves see the places where it's no longer in integrity or we've learned something and now we have to take greater responsibility or, oops, I really did do something I'm not proud of? Mm-hmm. That's the biggest determinant. And I think the what I've come to, at least, is the implication for that is, humility and compassion and an attempt to understand is actually not a way to let bad behavior off the hook, but actually a way to increase the amount of responsibility we do take. Mm -hmm. So we can have conversations where even just sorting out where do we stand, as opposed to jumping to a witch hunt or sorting people into good guys and bad apples, um, this really argues for... Having compassion and understanding as our starting point without letting up on the need to be responsible. And then I think there's a second implication, which is you can prepare yourself for this kind of situation by recognizing that every industry has inherent tensions. And there are always things in any particular configuration of you know business models where certain things are more visible, measurable, rewarded, talked about, and... The tendency is to push to do whatever it takes to raise those numbers. Mm -hmm. And there are always things that are harder to measure, longer term, um, maybe obligations that we just assume will fulfill, like not putting out unhealthy food that makes people sick. Um, Those are the things that constantly get chipped away at in incremental ways that we put people on the spot when they try and speak up about them. They sound like Henny Penny so those are the tensions that would be the place to watch for, so that you really focus your awareness. Um, and I think in the green and sustainability industry, it's going to be how how real is the mission over time? Are we continuing to progress towards our commitment to our uh, to change the game in this field?
0: Certainly a big topic you are addressing in your work is our own ethics and value system. I was surprised and pleased to read what you said about Jim Lair of the NewsHour. Uh, would you tell us what we can learn from him? Well,
1: I want to put this in the context
0: of um, the entire second half of
1: the book is what are the investments you can make in your ability to stand up and, and redefine the game? to keep that larger perspective and feel supported in it because you're going to be differing from, you know, often you'll be differing from the culture around you. And so what we've talked about so far, a number of things around being able to see on a a larger perspective, um, keeping your awareness open. Uh, My story was about um, keeping in touch with your strengths and your gifts and what you have to contribute. A third one is kind of being up to something, having some worthy enough win or a professional quest that you're attempting to serve that gives you a reason for courage. Otherwise, pushing back can feel kind of petty. But when you're serving something that's really critical, it helps you put healthy and unhealthy compromises in perspective. It helps you activate courage, and it helps you get through those inherent tensions in a particular industry, often distinguishing yourself from any others. And so this is where um, I found that Jim Lara, who is a person I really admire, I've learned a little bit more about him as... um, I tried to feature this in the book. So, as you know, um, media and journalism is really under pressure around this uh, commitment to serve the public interest. Uh-huh. It's not just any industry. It's an industry with a very particular function in a democracy, and that that's under a lot of threat right now with um, you know, kind of blurring the lines between advertising and reporting, how much investigative reporting is done. Um, and Lehrer and his crew, and apparently the whole um, NewsHour team, have adopted a number of professional guidelines, I call them, to help them weigh healthy and unhealthy compromise given the tensions in that industry. I'd like to read a couple of these that I I consider kind of remarkable. They're so pragmatic, but they actually get to the heart of where you could compromise in unhealthy ways. Please do. Um, Cover, write, and present every story with the care I would want if it were about me. Assume the viewer is as smart and caring and as good a person as I am. Assume the the same about all the people I report on. Carefully separate opinion and analysis from straight news. And don't use anonymous sources or blind quotes, except on rare occasions, no one should ever be allowed to attack another anonymously. And finally, I am not in the entertainment
0: business. (laughs) <laughs> or, the advertising business,
1: yeah, exactly, And what they've done by being so clear about those what I call distinguishing commitments, they make them different, given the tensions in that business, they've got a very clear brand um that makes them unique amongst um uh, most
0: news reporting. Excellent. It was it was really encouraging, especially as you say, in that particular industry which has been so compromised by the fact that there are so few news outlets today who I I I, I don't know what that does to overall quality, but I certainly don't think it's a positive thing. It was so encouraging to read about him and his team. You know, there are some times when we must share our truth, uh, even when that truth is hard. And I loved the story that you shared of a senior vice president named Scott and how he approached his need to share his organization's truth and how he used this to help his organization rather than going on a witch hunt. Could you share Scott's story and what you call a positive play?
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I do want to admit something you kind of alluded to at the beginning here. Redefining the game is hard. <laughs> it's actually only only a positive strategy when you consider the alternatives. It's, it's not a very easy thing to do. It calls you to respond to a lot more situations than, than playing along with the game. It's just the best way to stay in touch with who you really are and what gives you the most life, you know, enjoyment in life. And many of us who think about speaking the truth, um, pointing out uh, contradictions or um, the erosion of values, kind of have fantasies about speaking truth to power and pushing back and fighting them. Um, And these can be very satisfying (laughs) on the gut level when you finally get to that point, but they can also turn into an ego trip and be um, based on impulses rather than what will actually change the situation. People tend to be triggered by a sense of being attacked. When you raise something, especially as close to home as all of us like to believe we're ethical people, if you raise anything having to do with ethics, you're really threatening someone's self-respect. They're likely to respond as an attack and dig deeper into saying what they were doing was fine, and you're not going to have the impact. So what Scott did as a senior vice president in a nationwide company, had done a bunch of field interviews that came up with some pretty alarming data. As you said, it was a, it was not a pleasant truth. And um, I think he quotes it as saying, um, uh, working here is like setting your hair on fire and putting it out with a hammer. I thought that was great. <laughs> little visual there. <laughs> yeah. And what he was referring to was the company was in perpetual crisis mode, and it was basically – abusing its people's flexibility and commitment to deal with that rather than solving the root problems and having processes that made it easy to help the customer. Mm-hmm. Well, the p- first time I heard this story was from someone who had been in the room, and they were like, wow, he was so courageous, so bold. He said that right to the chairman of the board. All the senior leaders are present. I asked him about it, and he said, well, yeah, but first I met with the very senior leaders and said, here's what I'm going to have to say. Here's why I think it's in your interest to hear it. Here's why I think it's true, do you have anything to add? He said, I paid them the respect of letting them know what I felt they needed to hear and that it might be hard to hear.
0: Yeah, that was appropriate.
1: Yeah, and what it led to was him, at the time he was an outside consultant, what it led to was him being brought in as that senior VP and completely transforming the company's culture um, towards a customer, just a radically customer-oriented organization. And yet the symbol of that, of speaking the truth, the hard truth, was what signaled to the rest of the organization that it was real. The fact that he survived and was put in an internal role to champion that led other people to go, okay, this is the era of the customer. All right, let's go. But it does point to the fact that we need to have skills for this, and I challenge people to think in terms of positive plays that have the most impact for good. Someone described it as helping the right thing happen as
0: opposed to being right. Yeah. That was appropriate. What a big difference. Well, wrapping things up a bit, I I sense there are three options before us when we are faced with a compromise trap. Exit, voice, and loyalty. And from these, you list five potential actions that allow us to make a positive play in compromise. It seems, however, that the greatest opportunity for our organizations lies in the three actions that you list under voice, which include candid conversations, positive limits, and skillful influence. Would you talk to us a bit about candid conversations and share your powerful example of the new CEO, who is working with his coach? One reason this came to the
1: foreground for me was a an accountant who agreed to a fraud. He was like the youngest partner in an accounting firm and agreed to sign off knowingly on unethical you know on inaccurate financial statements for a customer. There were many other complicating factors that led him to think that was quote okay, but the reason he gave was that he didn't want to have to walk into his bosses and say he had made a mistake on that company's prior financial statements. so it was further down the path exactly that's the compromise trap but you dig yourself further because you don't want to accept one hardship you set up the um the future liabilities we're going to be paying a much bigger price Mm -hmm. and so i think as i looked into this there were several types of candid conversations that can help us avoid that oh i have no choice i just have to go along with this if we keep things clean and one of them is to own up to mistakes Another one is to be clear where you disagree with things in constructive and positive ways with proposals for what could be better. And the third is to be honest about what you can and can't commit to doing so that you don't end up in a situation where the boss says, uh, you know, I told you to meet that target and you feel like you have to fudge something wow. to show you did it. Right. And one example of this really came out um was quite moving to me was an executive coach with a manufacturing firm. Um he had a new leader transfer into the site. And right within the first few weeks, he had handled a dilemma that caused a lot of people to raise eyebrows about, does this guy have the judgment and integrity we thought? The coach confronted him about it and asked him, uh, you know, what happened in the situation. The fellow lied to him. So the coach went home going, what am I going to do now? This is a double whammy. And his wife said, hold your tongue, hold your tongue, (laughs) don't speak up right away. Wait 24 hours. That night, about 9 o'clock, he got a call from the fellow. And I want to read to you briefly what he said. He said he had been trying to read a bedtime story to his kid and couldn't do it. He had broken down crying. He was a 45-year-old man, but he couldn't go on knowing that he had just done that, that basically contradicted his own values. And he said to this coach on the phone, I stood up there and did my presentation. I'm your leader. You can count on me for honesty and all that. And then I broke every one of those rules, and I lied to you about it. Well, the two of them cleared it up. They agreed on a way for the leader to go back and speak to everyone else who knew he had lied. And the relationships got stronger because he came clean.
2: Right, right.
1: But it's quite a discipline to do this. <laughs> it's scary. You don't know the response when you do it. You have to have some skill, and it's still a, a bit of a wild card. But keeping things clean takes us out of those situations where we're so desperate we feel like we have no choice but to go along with the wrong thing. Yeah.
0: I think of those rare times when with people in very public roles who have stood up and said, I've done something wrong. How powerful. It opens up all kinds of opportunities, and people are so gracious when they recognize this person is is one with integrity who can admit when they've been wrong. It appears that trust goes up instead of going down, yet so few take the opportunity to do this, and it's an amazing thing to me. Your book is just wonderful. I have uh, have it marked all over and and places that are marked to to read again, and it, it's appropriate for the times in which we live. Elizabeth, bef- before we close today, would you tell us about how you can support individuals and organizations, and a bit about the work that you do with teams, uh, and and individuals and and tools and services that you can offer? Wonderful, great, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I, I would
1: say that I try to help both individuals and organizations because I think this comes both ways, and the transformation that you're trying to help people see the potential for can come from either either direction. Uh, my My most, I think the most powerful audience I can speak to is that mid-level executive where they are both a leader and a follower mm-hmm. because they have the potential to change in both directions. So for individuals, I've been offering one-on-one coaching Um, In these difficult times, I've found that sometimes a peer coaching group helps, so I've got a new group starting with a uh, session on April 26th as a kickoff, which people can find at my website on worklore.com. I actually have started a hotline, 888 Worklore, that when you feel cornered or you're pressed into a compromise that just doesn't feel right, that we can be here to help you sort it out and weigh out whether it's healthy or not. And there's a diagnostic on the site to help you identify which of the six foundations, um, you know, where you are on your six foundations and uh, how well prepared you are to deal with pressure and to, to fully give your gifts as a positive force. And then for organizations, um, we have a workshop focused on weighing healthy and unhealthy compromise and helps organizations to develop the guidelines like Jim Lehrer's to help you know what those are. And then I'm really excited about a new one that's in the works, and so I'll be publicizing it a little bit more in the future, Uh, what I'm calling a team renewal process that allows organizations to uncover how well they're living up to their commitments Mm -hmm. and unleash the employee initiative that comes from cleaning up those commitments. So the focus is as we move out of this recession, as people want their teams to uh, team members to take independent action, how can you clean up the commitments about the mission being real, the actions being in alignment so your team members trust that and go out there and really spread the word about your business so that 's to come, and people are feel feel free to contact me through the website and i 'll be happy to let them know uh, there's an email subscription list as well, and i 'll be happy to let them know as that comes along.
0: That sounds wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you for taking your time to share with us today your knowledge and ideas around this key concern. It's been just great to have this time with you, and I'd like to encourage our listening audience to purchase your book, to get a copy of The Compromise Trap, or to connect personally with Elizabeth. Once again, you can go to www.compromisetrap.com, and following our interview today, you're invited to join in this conversation by joining a group on LinkedIn called Bookends, The Discussion. You can pose questions for Elizabeth, who will join us in the discussion group, along with your colleagues and peers. You'll also find a link to the recording of today's interview to share with others or re-listen yourself. Be sure to invite your friends to join this group. Thanks again for being with us today, Elizabeth Doty. Thanks so much, Susan. Bye-bye now.